Hi, my name's Mark, and it's my privilege to serve as one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to bring the first message in this Advent season. I love Christmas, and I love Advent, and doesn't the building look great? So thanks to Abby uh, Krafzig and her decorating crew who uh, transformed it into looking so um, festive. I just love this time of year, and... Um, as has been mentioned, this is the first in our uh, Light in the Darkness series. This series is actually going to cover five Sundays because this year Christmas is on a Sunday and New Year's is on a Sunday. So the Advent series is actually going to go one week after Christmas through uh, Advent. And then we'll have a connected message for our Christmas Eve service as well. So we're going to be making our way through uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2. And this morning we begin with Luke 5, 1 to 25, and Kara Schmidt's going to come read our passage for us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. I'm going to pray from Psalm 119. Oh, remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. Lord, we have your word before us. We've just heard it with our ears. Give us 
ears to hear it in our hearts and to hold it fast in a way that brings hope. This is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. Lord, there are afflicted saints here this morning needing comfort and you have promises offering life. Would your word work amongst us in that way today? The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Lord, for those who experience resistance to being a Christian, for those who are derided, for those who experience reproach in various ways, I pray that the working of your spirit and your word would produce steadfastness. And I pray, oh great God, let every heart here prepare room for Christ this morning. And would you work in us in such a sweet way by the power of the Spirit that we might be moved to a season of gratefulness and thanksgiving for Christ, for your glorious kingdom, for the first advent and the second. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was working on this passage this week. I came across a helpful summary in the ESV Literary Study Bible, and here's what it says. They write, Luke begins to tell the story of Jesus by first telling us the story of John the Baptist, starting with the prophecy of his birth to the old priest Zechariah and his barren wife Elizabeth. So now here's a question. Why would Luke begin to tell us the story of Jesus by first telling us the story of someone else? This is a bit of an odd passage. In fact, I've got a whole bunch of Advent books. I love having an Advent book to just, just warm my heart during the Advent season. And I've, I don't know, I've got seven or eight of them, and I leafed through. I couldn't find in a single one of those Advent books an entry that related to this passage. It's sort of the Cinderella of Advent passages. It gets overlooked, it would seem. So I want to ask the question, why is this passage in your Bibles? Why did Luke write this passage? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire it for us? Have you ever been to a concert and before the main performer comes out, you get some other musicians or some other bands that come out first? You know how that works? And they may be good, but they're also sort of building anticipation for the main event. I think this passage is a little bit like that. It's not that these people are unimportant, but that they're preparing us for someone who's more important. This is sort of the advent of John the Baptist before we get the advent of Jesus Christ. So this is a contrast for us. If you've been here for our series in the Gospel of Mark, you may notice Luke starts his gospel very differently than Mark does. Mark's got this action-packed, fast-paced approach, and he starts the good news with Jesus and John already full-grown, ready to begin their public ministry. Luke sort of has this elegant thoroughness to his writing, and so he begins the story of the good news of Jesus before John or Jesus have even been conceived. And so that's what we're going to be walking through in Luke 1 and 2. Here today, we're going to meet John's parents, a terrifying angel, and a faithful God. And and what's this here for? What's, what's this intended to do in us? 
Well, I think this passage can increase our anticipation for Jesus because we'll see that God is getting everything ready for his son to be born in the earth. I think this passage can encourage us because the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth is just a sweet example of a faithful, godly couple. And I think this passage can stir thankfulness in us that we serve the God who remembers. He never forgets. So let's walk through the passage in its four parts, starting with John's parents. Luke first introduces us to John's parents, and the story opens this way. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or keep your screens available because we'll walk through the text and drop back in at different points. But first, we're introduced to Herod, king of Judea. Now, who is, who is Herod? Well, because there's a, <clears throat> there's a bunch of Herods. This is Herod the Great. He ruled for 34 years. He was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was really good administratively and skillful. This temple that's going to come into the view in just a moment, he built this massive uh, temple in Jerusalem, but he was also violent and paranoid. He's the one, Matthew tells us, when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, he had all the baby boys murdered in Bethlehem in order to prevent a rival to his throne. He was king, but he wasn't from the line of David. In fact, he was descended from Esau, not from Jacob. He was an Edomite. He was king, but the Romans were in charge. So he was only king as long as they allowed him to be king. So during this time now, Zechariah is the priest, a priest. There were 18,000 priests in Israel, it's estimated at that time, far more than needed to carry out the duties uh, 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 that are required in the temple in Jerusalem. So they would rotate who was there in shifts. And twice a year, the division of Abijah that, that Zechariah was a part of, they would be on duty. So he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in a little town in the, in the uh, area of, of, of Judah. And he probably lived in a little village and, and worked a different job to support himself when he wasn't twice a year uh, in, in Jerusalem for these responsibilities. So he probably sets off from his home in this village, and he probably leaves his wife, Elizabeth, at home. Elizabeth, his wife, was also from the line of priests, a descendant of Aaron. Her name is sweet. Her name means worshiper of God. And so she was. Look at verse 6 with me, please. It says, and they, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What does it mean that they were righteous? It doesn't mean that they were perfect or sinless, but it means that they were faithfully living out their lives in accordance with the commandments and statutes of the Lord. If you were here for the series in Psalm 119 this summer, you may remember that we looked at those words, the descriptions of God's word. I want you to notice now, in light of the fact that they're righteous, I want you to notice the next thing that's said about them. Look in verse 7. But, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So I want to ask you this morning, can you put those two things together, righteous and childless? Because that was their experience. They knew the unending pain of infertility. And now they're an older couple, probably too old to conceive. But let us see 
righteous and childless together. Their childlessness, their infertility, it was not God's judgment on their sin. No, they were living godly lives. And their infertility was a painful reminder that they lived in a fallen world, a world of darkness in need of light. And this was hard because it brought reproach, cultural shame. And it was hard because this was a time before Social Security and pensions. And so it was the job of children to take care of their parents when they aged. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth had a massive hole in their safety net, no children. Now, before moving on, let's learn from this passage that infertility should never be assumed to be the result of someone's sin. And though we'll see in a moment that they're going to have a miracle baby, we can be sure that there have been many Zechariahs and Elizabeths who simply lived out their days righteous, childless, and faithful in serving the Lord. And we thank God for people like that. And now we move to the next paragraph and we find a faithful God who never forgets. Look at verse 8 with me, please. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Zechariah is chosen by lot out of this big group of, of priests one of them is going to get to go in and burn incense, and he gets this literally once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So here's the scene. I want you to try to picture the scene. He's in Jerusalem. Here's the temple that Herod built, that outside wall. The next slide will show you. That's the dividing wall. The Gentiles were not permitted to go past that wall. Israelites could go inside that courtyard, and at some point the women were, were not allowed to go further, but the men could go in. And then that building that's in the middle there, that's the holy place. And only priests could go in there, and only a few. And inside that holy place is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there, there was another curtain there. And inside that curtain, only the high priest could go, and only once a year. So Zechariah is chosen to be able to go into the holy place and before this altar of incense, here's an idea of what this might have looked like, he's going to burn this incense. The idea of burning incense is to make this fragrant offering before the Lord. And incense was symbolic for prayer. Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Revelation 5 and verse 8, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb at God's throne, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So while he's in the holy place, Zechariah is not only offering this incense, as was done twice a day on this altar, but he's in there praying and outside all these, these people in this crowd, they're praying as well. While he's in there, try to imagine. This is a once, he's never been in here before. He's probably the only one in there. And while he's in there, suddenly there's someone else there with him. But it's not a human being, it's an angel. And the angel is standing next to the incense altar. Now, if you read through your Bibles, you'll find that when God makes himself known through a personal appearance or through an angel, 
almost always the reaction of people is exactly the same. You know what it is? They're terrified. It's fear because the living God is awesome. And so are his messengers. If you were here a few weeks ago when Vince was preaching from Mark 4, we got a glimpse of what that looked like when Jesus stilled the storm, revealing his divine authority and power. The disciples didn't say, oh, that was cool, do it again. They were terrified. They were fearful. Who is this that can do this, they said. In Luke 2, we'll get there in a few weeks, on Christmas morning when the angel appeared, uh, an angels appeared to the, to the shepherds, they were, the shepherds were filled with fear. I want you to get the scene here. Shepherds, fishermen, these are tough blue-collar workers, and when they see angels, they are terrified. So usually what happens when an angel comes on the scene, the first thing they need to say is, don't be afraid, right? And so that's exactly what happens here. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, your prayer has been heard. Isn't that wonderful? God remembers. Your prayer has been heard. I wonder which prayer or prayers he's referring to. Is it a prayer that he just prayed in that moment? Is it a prayer that he'd prayed long ago? Is it a summary of many prayers, maybe hundreds of prayers, maybe thousands of prayers? And I wonder... What he'd been praying for. A son, for sure he'd prayed that probably many times. The redemption of Israel, no doubt, he'd been praying for that as well. Light in the darkness. And the angel says, you're going to have a son and we'll name him for you. It won't be Zechariah as would be traditional. It'll be John. John means God has been gracious. And oh, hasn't he been gracious as we read this story? John's arrival will bring Zechariah and Elizabeth joy and gladness. Can you imagine the joy and gladness this elderly couple experienced as she was suddenly pregnant with John? And here's John's pre-birth biography. Highlight three things. First, he will be great before the Lord. He'll be great before the Lord. The word before is used in two ways there. Before in the, in the sense of being in the presence. You're, you're bef- to be before someone is to be in their presence. And so he will be in the presence of the Lord because the Lord himself is going to come and be on the earth. But he will also be great before the Lord in the sense of going first with the Lord following. He will be the forerunner. John will be preparing the way for the incarnation of God the Son to come and live and die and rise again. And repentance and faith will be preached in the name of that Lord to all nations. And it's reached all the way here to us this morning. He will be great before the Lord and he will be filled with the Spirit. I don't find Help me if I've missed something, but I don't find in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit is active in different ways and places and times. I don't find anybody filled with the Spirit until we see this outpouring of the Spirit here before Pentecost, here at the time of the Incarnation. We see 
John filled with, will be filled with the Spirit from the womb. We, we will see Elizabeth shortly in the next passage filled with the Spirit. Zechariah, when he finally does speak, he will speak filled with the Spirit and prophesy because God is getting ready. He's getting ready to pour out his Spirit just like he promised in the prophet Joel. And we see third that he will not only be great before the Lord and filled with the Spirit, he will have this Elijah-like ministry. Now, Elijah was, was one of the first and old uh, prophets in the Old Testament, but Elijah comes up in this prophecy in Malachi 6 that an Elijah-like figure will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And so th this is mentioned by the angel here that, that John will come and he will have this ministry of reconciliation within families. And he will come with this job to make ready for the Lord, King Jesus, a people prepared. John is coming with this prophetic ministry. John will really be the last of the Old Testament style prophets. It's been 400 or so years since Malachi, as far as we know, the last of the prophets prophesied. It's been a long silence. But this God, this faithful God, this is a God who remembers. He remembers your prayers, everyone. He remembers his promises, every single one. And this great God, who always knows what time it is, he's getting things ready for King Jesus to arrive on the scene. And John will be the messenger who announces this. That's the faithful God who never forgets. This next section, we, we zero in a little more on this terrifying angel who stands in God's presence. Look at verse 18 with me, please. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, this gospel, this good news. Now, if you're like me, this is one of those moments where you've got to just kind of slow down and say, well, what's happening here? And is Zechariah kind of getting a raw deal out of this? I mean, the dude just asked the question. It's kind of a crazy thing that he's just been told. And if you keep reading... Mary's going to ask the same angel a question after she's told about her miraculous conception that, that, that's coming and she won't get, get corrected for it. How come Zechariah gets corrected and, and is then going to be silent for nine months? What's going on here? Well, I wonder if this isn't one of those places where it'd be really helpful to hear tone of voice, right? I wonder, maybe rephrasing this a little bit, is this, wow, that's amazing. Can you please help me understand how that could come about? Or do you expect me to believe this? I'm too old for that. So they're both questions, but they're different kinds of questions, right? And they're questions arising out of different hearts, a heart of faith and a heart of doubt and unbelief. It would seem that the angel, who probably can parse these things out better than we can, understood that Mary's question was 
a question arising from faith, and Zechariah's question was a question arising from unbelief. And when he says, how shall I know this? It's worth slowing down and just pondering for a second. You know, you're in the holy place, the place of God's manifest presence with his people. There's an angel standing there with you, and he's talking to you. And he's telling you what's about to happen. If God could send an angel, maybe God could allow Elizabeth to conceive. There are some actually pretty good reasons to believe what the angel's saying here. And you know what we're seeing? We look at Zechariah. We're seeing a good man who's fallen into unbelief. And before we're too hard on him, it's not too difficult for any of us to remember that we've all failed in this way too, haven't we? My anxieties, worries, fears that are a constant daily battle for me, every single one of those, trace it back to its root and they all go back to unbelief. Not believing God really is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And here's what I love about this story. Ponder this. Zechariah's unbelief doesn't disqualify him from being part of God's story. Isn't that wonderful? God is gracious and forgiving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Gabriel introduces himself. You want to know how this is going to be? Well, let me explain to you who I am. Gabriel I stand in the presence of God, and you, Zechariah, you're not going to talk for nine months till that baby's born. So he's going to be, you ever been on a Zoom call, and the guy's talking, but he's got his mute button on? That's Zechariah for nine months. The lips are going to be moving, nothing's going to come out. And so it was. He was silent for nine months, which gave him lots of time to meditate on what's going on. And when he does speak... Oh, listen well. When you get to the end of chapter one, that sermon, listen well, because he's going to have some really great things to say. Now, all this is going on in the temple. The people outside are starting to get anxious. And eventually, Zechariah does come out, and soon he returns home. And I've, I've been trying to picture in my mind the scene. Can you imagine the scene of him walking in the door, having just heard all this from the angel and not being able to talk, and trying then to explain to his wife what's just happened. Would have loved to have been there for that moment. Don't know exactly how that played out, but we do know this. Elizabeth does become pregnant. And so the last scene here is a grateful woman who gives praise to God. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying... Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. She decides to stay out of sight for five months and in the sixth month, Mary will come and visit her and we'll see that passage coming soon. Not clear exactly, 
not clear to me exactly why she decided to be sort of out of sight, secreted away for those five months. But what is clear to me is that she knows that God has done this and it's marvelous in her sight. Thus the Lord has done for me. He looked on me. He heard me. He knows how kind the Lord is to take away the shame and the reproach that she's received from people and to grant this long-desired child. And she knows what all God's people must remember. Psalm 30. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. And dear saints, hear this. In God's kingdom, there is always joy in your future. In God's kingdom, there is always joy in your future. Joy and gladness coming from the living God who never forgets. And so there you have it. The advent before the advent. The dawn of salvation. This message is titled The Dawn of Salvation. It's not dawn as in sunrise. It's dawn as in just those first rays of light peeking over the horizon. Have you ever been out just before there's any light? It's still dark. We used to at this time of year when we lived in California. We lived in Los Angeles. And for either Thanksgiving or Christmas, we would pack the car full of kids and presents and stuff and drive the 400 miles up to San Francisco. And we discovered that it went much better if we could get an early start while the kids were still sleeping. So we'd wake up really early and get them out of bed while they were still asleep and put them in the car and hopefully they'd all fall back asleep. And then we'd be driving up I-5, going, getting somewhere around the, the, the grapevine and it was pitch black. And then there was this moment off on the right side of the car when you could see that first light. And that little glimmer of light would just peek over the horizon and we'd keep driving and looking and driving and looking and it would get brighter and brighter and then eventually the sun would peek over the horizon and then eventually the sunrise would come. And Advent is like that. This is like the first rays of light waiting until Christ, the sunrise from on high, comes to visit us. What do we do with this passage? What can this passage do in us? Well, no doubt many things, but I want to just highlight one this morning. This Thanksgiving weekend, may this passage promote thanksgiving in our hearts. I love Elizabeth's praise to God, and I want to follow her lead in recognizing God's work in this wonderful scene, and let that work lead us to thanksgiving. Last Tuesday night, we had our elders meeting, and Edward uh, led us in a time of fellowship that was just a, a very sweet time. The question is just simply this. What are you thankful for? Something personal and something in ministry. And we just went around and we had a very sweet time of fellowship. It was so encouraging to just focus on what God is doing, what he's done, and give thanks to him. So three Thanksgiving expressions from this passage we can enter into, I think, from what we've just seen and heard. First, let us thank the Lord for faithful believers who press on despite unanswered prayer. Let us thank the Lord for faithful believers 
who press on despite unanswered prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in a time of spiritual decline. They lived with the pain and shame of infertility. They lived with the uncertainty of their, their retirement years, if you will. And how did they live when life was hard and prayers were unanswered? They simply and quietly lived by God's word. And how we thank God for examples like that. This is my last Sunday with you before I start a sabbatical. And I want you to know, as I've been thinking about you and this sabbatical and this message, I thank God for you. I thank God that I get to be a part of this congregation. Those at home, those here. And I thank God as I look around and know who's at home and know and see your faces. I thank God to be a part of a church with so many who faithfully and quietly serve God, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah. You're not living out your plan, are you? Just like they weren't. But we're living out his, and we're doing it together. And it's so encouraging to be in a church filled with faithful saints who simply take God at his word, take another step, live another day for the glory of the coming King. I love you. I thank God for you. And I thank God to be a part of a people who are running with endurance the race that is set before us. It's my hope that this sabbatical will simply be a time to be strengthened, to come back and spend and be spent for you and to continue to walk faithfully with you as long as the Lord gives us breath. So let us thank God for faithful saints who press on. Second, let us thank God for being the God who remembers. Don't you love this? Your prayer has been heard. The Lord looked on me. The Lord, hear this, the Lord remembers your prayers. Every single one. The prayers that you've prayed and forgotten, they're stored up in golden bowls right next to his throne. He never forgets. Aren't you glad to serve a God like that? And let us thank God for being the God who remembers his promises. His promises to Joel. His promises to Malachi. His promises to Zechariah and Elizabeth. His promises from Genesis to Revelation, he remembers and keeps every single one. And all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He remembers. He remembers your prayers. He remembers his promises. And I love this little story and this little scene with Zechariah. You know what? He remembers that we're but dust. He knows our frame. And even when we stumble into unbelief or some other sin, our great God remembers to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is ready to forgive. He's our Father forever. Oh, I love serving a God like that. Let us thank God for being the God who remembers. 
And finally, let us thank God for both advents of Christ. You know, Zechariah, he was a good priest. Christ is greater because Jesus offered not incense, but the once and for all sacrifice of himself. Elizabeth was a great and faithful believer, suffering reproach while trusting God. Jesus is greater because he suffered the reproach of the cross in order to bear our sins in his body on that tree. John was a great prophet, but Jesus is greater because Jesus not only speaks God's word to us, Jesus is God's word to us. Gabriel was great. Jesus is greater. Gabriel could stand in God's presence. Jesus is God present. Christmas is our celebration of the first advent, but also a time to remember the promise of his coming, to bring the great day of the Lord, that final judgment, the destruction of the ungodly, and the welcoming of his people into his presence in a new creation forever. So this Thanksgiving, this Advent season, let us thank God for both Advents of Christ because we live in between two. I want to urge you over the coming weeks in the busyness of this season to find some ways to slow down and ponder the first advent of Christ and look forward to the second advent of Christ and give thanks to God for both.